Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Pursued by a Bear in association with Nick Hearn Books. This month we're looking at the Bruntwood Prize for Playwriting, which is run from the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester, and we'll be talking to judges, readers, and one of the previous winners. Just to put the prize in some kind of context, there have, as of the 17th of November 2015, been 22 winners, 16 productions in 28 UK venues, 11,000 entries, including almost 2,000 this year alone, and over £200,000 of prize money. A few months ago, almost 2,000 people kind of started to write a play and finish their plays and sent them out into the world. And I think that's still quite an amazing thing because it's a hard thing to write a play. It takes a lot of courage to write a play. That's Sarah Francom, who's the Artistic Director of the Royal Exchange Theatre, and she's one of the judges for the prize. And we'll be hearing more from her later. Ah, right. I was long-listed the last prize, and that, that time around it was Zola Gorgon, which is, that's like a my favourite cheese, which is Gorgonzola. And then this time round it was Joe Ruthrand, which is like an anagram of my second name and last name. It's a bit silly, really. But yeah, Joe Ruthrand. Joe Ruthrand's what they, when they rang up to tell me I've been, I was on the shortlist, you immediately know who it is and what it's about, because they say, can I speak to Joe Ruthrand, please? That's previous winner Joe Ruthrand, or Zola Gorgon. Uh, obviously, that's not her real name. It's actually Anna Jordan who won in 2013 with her play Yen. Okay, so the Rumpwood Prize is. Here's Sarah Frankham again. A national prize for playwriting which is now 10 years old. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Bruntwood as a national competition. This is Suzanne Bell, the literary manager at the Royal Exchange. It was initially set up as a northwest local competition and then there was a real response to that, a real desire to expand it. We run it from the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester every two years. It gives out every two years £40,000 worth of prize money. All that prize money is provided by Bruntwood which is where the prize gets its name from, obviously. And its chair and founder is Michael Oglesby. Yes, well, we're, we're basically a property company. We both develop and invest. We have a large portfolio of buildings which we've built up over the last 40 years. We're based in Manchester, but we have offices and properties in Birmingham and Leeds and Liverpool. We see the arts as a very important part of the community in which we exist. We do more art sponsorship than any other, any other company in the region. But we also support a whole host of different causes as well. Um, but arts is the most high-profile thing that we support. And it opens for entries. So anybody over 18 wants to write a full-length play and send it in. All those plays are read. A short list of ten are then given to a group of judges, which changes every time we do the prize. Four prizes are given, and all of those plays are put into development at the exchange. So that's basically how the prize works. But let's go back to Anna Jordan to find out a little bit about her background and why she became a writer. Up until the age of about five, I wanted to be a ballerina, and then, and then when I knew that 
well, I didn't know at five it wasn't going to happen, but I, I very swiftly changed to wanting to be an actor. My mum and dad are actors, very much a theatre family. My mum's a director as well. And so that was my passion to do that was so strong that I never considered writing. And then I trained at Lambda and I did a bit of writing my own stuff there. And again, a couple of people said, you know, that maybe you should think about this. But I was like, no, no, it's all about acting. And, you know, in a weird sort of way, I just never imagined myself being able to be on the other side. But so I guess what started me writing was, you know, it came from my acting, really. I was playing a character. I was playing a role in this play. And the research that I was doing for this play around the community and the area that we were making this play about just really really inspired me and I remember thinking not that I wanted to be a writer or anything like that but just that I'm going to make a play about that I'm going to write a play about that and then so I sort of scrawled it all freehand this two-hander which was about two people about to throw themselves off the top of a tower block (laughs) this is long before a long way down by Nick Hornby I have to add I didn't nick it off him I don't think he uh, nicked it off me but you know but I remember at the time thinking okay I want to be I think I want to be a writer now and being very impatient and if someone had told me then in 10 years time you'll have a play on at the royal court I think that that younger me would have gone 10 years (laughs) I'm not waiting 10 years obviously I understand what a huge thing it is having a play on at the royal court but I was so impatient I really didn't realize quite what a long game it was going to be so I had two productions before Yen. I was already going to work with Epsilon Productions who put on Chicken Shop, which was one of my very early plays. And then we took Freak, sort of revived Freak from its scratch performance with Theatre 503 and Polly and Productions. And that all started because I've got the most appalling taste in music when I go for a run. I listened to the worst cheese and so I was listening to this this dance music with these unbelievable lyrics about being objectified. And I thought, God, you know, this is just this is not designed for me, like 33-year-old as I was at the time running around Wandsworth Common. This is designed for teenage girls who are, you know, uh, who are maybe having sex for the first time. And that's what started me thinking. song called I Am No Angel <laughs> this sound really weird saying the lyrics I Am No Angel I like it when you do that stuff to me I Am No Angel I like it when you talk talk dirty to me that's it right it's called Talking Dirty or Dirty Talk or something like that what really stuck in my mind was about doing stuff to me not stuff with me doing stuff to me and you know don't get me wrong I'm really and I'm no prude at all but I just it made me think with Yen it was a more gradual thing and actually Yen did go in a drawer and come out and did go but I think at the time I was teaching a lot I was directing but I wasn't making my living as a writer and in fact I was making my living licensing fruit machines at pubs across the country (laughs) interesting job but it actually was knowing that Brunt was coming that was like okay I've got to get this done now and the second act didn't take very long I suppose a few months to write. So Anna submitted her play to Bruntwood and the next step is it needs to be read and it is by lots of people here's Sarah explaining the process I'm really proud of kind of how we do the reading process and the reading process involves an awful lot of people who are kind of passionate and experienced and work within 
theatre writing either as directors. Getting a director whose work is mostly with new writing um, involved probably made a lot of sense. This is David Mercatali. I like the Royal Exchange. I'd taken work there already. My, my work with Philip Ridley had gone there. Ten and Apalm went there on tour. And then in 2013, we did Dark Vanilla Jungle. So I had a relationship with the Royal Exchange already. I think they're obviously looking to get involved as wide a variety of people within the theatre industry. As theatre makers, as critics. Being a critic or a blogger, Suzanne from Bruntwood and Royal Exchange said, please come on board as a reader. We'd love your input on the, that process. Blogger Megan Vaughan, who's been on this podcast a number of times before. As literary managers, dramaturgs, and it's not something that just happens. It really doesn't happen in this building. It's kind of a network that's across the country of different people reading scripts. And then we first read and second read plays. Any play that's room, any kind of interest is, is, is given two reads. As far as I know, it goes through three stages to get to the top 100. And then at the top 100, there is another group of readers who then get it down to a top 40. And then the top 40 is down to a top 10. And so it takes a while. And I think... It's the rigorousness of the process around how we read. And I think now it's that reading process is really very close to an awful lot of people who are next-generation makers. As well as Meg Vaughan and David McAtali, one of the readers was this critic Andrew Hayden. It's sort of like you're a cogging machine and you basically say whether something's good or not, in your opinion. You couldn't what? Couldn't stand the what? Paperwork. You couldn't stand the paperwork. Listen... This whole system of yours could be on fire and I couldn't even turn on a kitchen tap without filling out a 27B stroke 6. And then you send that to the feedback person and, and they'll coordinate whatever they've got. I mean, actually, even when you're inside, it's kind of one of those mysterious bureaucracies where you don't know what's what you've really done, which is quite nice, really. Bloody paperwork. <laughs> I suppose one has to expect a certain amount. Why? I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out, wherever there's trouble, a man alone. You don't feel a great weight of responsibility as such. You don't, you don't think, oh no, I alone am holding the fate of a poor little playwright in my hands. Now they got the whole country sectioned off. You can't make a move without a form. Andrew's opinion is kind of at odds with the other readers. For Meg and David, they felt a huge weight of responsibility. This felt very direct. It felt like a very real, concrete effect was being had on somebody's career and the first few that I read I read them through twice I was terrified I was what if I'm missing the key ingredient what if this is the new Jerusalem what if this is the new Blackwatch and I'm not seeing it and I press the no button on that and I fuck this person over forever what if that's it you feel very responsible you feel hugely responsible to do right by the people who've spent their time on it you know well you you think, you feel how much this means and what winning it would do for their career. And so there's a power that comes with it. With great power comes great... Who are you denying an opportunity? Every time you say no, and I said no much more than I said yes, who am I knocking back? Who am I telling? Who am I? Don't give up the day job to. Who am I saying you're not good enough? And it's one thing to say not for me to a show that's been produced, has got support, has got an audience. And it's another thing to see the very beginnings of a project. Who am I? And go, no. Who am I? 
not good enough. That's uh, Jean Valjean there ending that segment. This is probably a good time to take a little break. Right, let's carry on. There are definite kind of trendy subjects, and God, I sound like my mother using the word trendy. You can't be certain what themes are going to to come through. You can see that some of them are related to the current political climate. I must have read six in a row that were about going to space, one of which was actually fantastic. You can tell they were all written as soon as there was that announcement about, you know, we're sending people to Mars and they're never going to come home again. And it's like playwrights by the radio, like taking notes. Others are really interestingly much more international. I think a lot of the plays kind of concern the relationship between the local and the global and how some of the ways we're starting to make theatre can help um, explore and theatricalise that relationship. And others play with form in, in very different ways. I don't know if this is a trend, but there was a lot of sense of not being in control of your destiny and life being scary. But I think I think it's really interesting the fact that what 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 you have is such a different type of you don't feel like you're reading the same play. Those forty that had got through, they couldn't have been more different. A lot of fear plays trying to explore a sense of confusion, confusion. about the world we're living in. Um, Fear about the world we're living in, powerlessness, impotence, confusion, confusion, and how much knowledge is too much knowledge. Not for the first time, Andrew Hayden disagrees. No, 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 no. It's, I mean, it's completely diffuse, isn't it? I mean, you've got all the people who've ever thought of writing a play and then turning it into a competition. Not particularly stylistically similar, not thematically similar. <laughs> Not similar in any way whatsoever to each other. One bit, nah. I didn't even really look or spend a lot of time thinking about who was going to be on the panel because actually, I think the whole thing about the Bruntwood is that it's not about the individuals that are assessing it. That we're all part of a much bigger framework and structure. It's deep and dark and bigger than all of us. So let's go back to Anna and find out about her prize-winning play Yen. And it's Genesis. Like so many plays, and when I sort of look back to all my plays, they're all kind of a combination of different factors, of of things that kind of collide together to kind of create this germ of an idea. And so with Yen, it was a news report, two boys... Uh, two brothers, teenage brothers, that committed this really horrible crime. When they sort of looked into why they did what they did, etc., it turned out that their mum had been gone. Uh, they were home alone, and they'd been watching hardcore pornography and saw films and playing violent video games. And they'd done that pretty constantly, and, and, and I was fascinated by the idea of that. You know, really pushing these characters into an extreme circumstance, almost kind of an experiment of what happens to a person if if they're not getting any of their uh, traditional 
education or nurturing. I had this weird kind of image in my head of these two brothers bare-chested and fighting, both covered in blood and kind of rolling around the living room floor. It was weird. I don't quite know where that came from. And then where I used to live at my old block of flats, we had some problem neighbours who moved in and they had a massive German shepherd called Taliban. (laughs) And so I always thought, I'm going to put a dog called Taliban in the play but it's basically the story of two brothers Bobby and Hench who are home alone their mum Maggie's moved in with her boyfriend Taliban can't leave the house because he's bitten someone on the estate they can't afford to feed him they can't afford to feed themselves and they just live on this diet of porn and and cod basically call of duty and then there's this new girl Jenny who comes into their world who's an animal lover and who's seen their dog up against the window like howling and barking And she comes to try and rescue Taliban, basically. And she comes from a rural village in Wales. She's just lost her father and she's staying with family that she hates. And it's about their relationship with her and how she changes them and and how that kind of moves forward with some sort of... with hilarious and devastating consequences, which is, like, awful when you hear that at the end of a blurb. So when the readers are reading something like Yen, what's going on in their heads? Are they imagining it as they go? There's always no such thing as a good play. So how do you judge what a good play is? And something that I found when, I, when I'm reading is that, you know, it's impossible to judge a play without seeing the production. You're always imagining it visually as a director. I find it hard to think that people don't. Maybe that's because I think there's, there's an essential contract that a play is about production. Nobody is writing a play with the idea that it won't be produced. I can't imagine. Because I'm, obviously I'm not much of a director. So, well, I'm nothing of a director. So I think, in a way, I feel slightly compromised sometimes by what I think it's going to look like on stage. I imagine it on stage, but I'm not thinking, could I direct it? Because I'm not a director. And in terms of how I see production, it tends to fall into into three territories. I might either read it and go, I can see this being problematic. It's not working for me. It's not exciting in terms of its potential for staging. Then there's the, wow, I could think of so many different ways to stage this myself. And isn't this very exciting and brilliant? And then there's a third one where you're going, wow, this play really has something. I don't have a clue what to do with this. Let's take this a little bit further, because this isn't about me. And I think it's it's realising that your own bias is not the more important thing. And a lot of them kind of actually have real challenges in terms of making, exciting challenges in making them as pieces of theatre. And as a, as a director, I've read them and kind of gone, fuck, I don't know how you do that, but God, that's that's exciting. That's ex- that's an exciting problem to have. So, how do you judge what a good play is? And something that I found when I when I'm reading is that you know it's impossible to judge a play without seeing the production. And so, on one level, you kind of read a a straightforward play and you think, actually, you know, I can imagine a great production of this by maybe ten directors in Britain and most directors in Germany, and I can also imagine the bog standard serve the text text production. Production. So the first round of readers, they have really broken the back of it. The readers at each phase get the statement from the judges just to help because otherwise, yeah, you are just going, do you like this play? And it becomes completely subjective. 
And then it's your job in the second phase to really see which players you think have a future in the prize and which you think might, might possibly be able to win. I'd say it's really difficult for readers because they're not reading for a theatre. They're not reading for a space. They're not reading for an artistic director and that director's taste. They're not reading for a sense of programming a season of work. I actually found the standard really high, which I think flies completely in the face of the belief that there's there's only a small amount of plays that can actually be produced. And also, the other difficult thing is that it states in the reader handbook we're not looking for finished plays. So you kind of go, oh my God, that's like even more of a conundrum because you're going, well, has the writer got the skill set to get the play into a place where it might be, in inverted commas, finished? You're, you're kind of just looking for a sheaf of the most interesting notes going on in it. A hitherto undiscovered theatre brain in Britain. Sounds like an extract from the Nihilist's handbook. I thought that actually so many of the plays have potential. 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 And that's all you can really say at that point because of the development that's going to go into them. All you can do is put through and say, you know, I think this play has potential. 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 I look for plays that make me feel. A play that's challenging. A play that makes you think. But I also look for plays that make me think that perhaps challenges your established views. Originality, it's bringing something new. All right, so you're not going to go out and, and vote for the other political party, but nevertheless, it changes your, your views and your outlook. It's about a visceral response to something. It's telling its own story. And I can still viscerally remember every script that has made the top ten. And I remember where I was when I read it and the emotional response I had to it and I can remember lines from it and I can remember the voices in my head of the characters and I can remember the visual sense of seeing it and the world that was created. We're looking for the play that will mean plays are written differently from now on. It feels like a new contribution to the world of theatre. When you are sort of getting up at four o'clock in the morning to read scripts, you immerse yourself in the world that that writer has created and you totally forget it's four o'clock in the morning and you totally forget where you are and you just, your heart stops and you stop breathing because what that playwright is trying to communicate is such a fantastic combination of gut and heart and head. What's really interesting is that Anna doesn't see it the same way that the readers and the judges do. I think sometimes what's a little bit dangerous, and this isn't to do with Bromwell, but this is just generally advice that's given to writers who are coming up or who are writing for the first time, is that people sometimes say, we want to read or hear something we've never heard before. We want something unique and new. And I think that puts a tremendous pressure on a playwright because really what's new... There are no new stories. There are just new ways of telling them. The world will stagnate if there isn't always somebody trying something new. Nothing old, nothing new, nothing ventured, nothing gained, nothing still won or lost. Nothing further than proof, nothing wilder than you, nothing older than time, nothing sweeter than white, nothing physically, recklessly, hopelessly blind, nothing I couldn't say, nothing why cost today. Another stirring song to round off that bit there. Now here's Anna talking about the prize-giving day itself. I mean, the whole day itself is crazy because the tension builds so much and I was genuinely, genuinely nervous because we got a free breakfast, beautiful breakfast. I didn't eat hardly any of it. 
There was free booze at lunchtime. I didn't drink hardly any of it, which is so unlike me. I was genuinely, genuinely nervous because what had happened was right up until that point where you keep it a secret about, you must keep it a secret about the shortlist. So you're kind of, I think I told about three or four people and you're the whole time you go, this is enough. This is enough. This is incredible. This is enough. But on the day, I just allowed myself to think, oh, I would love to win. Oh, I'd love to get a judge's prize. I'd love it so much. So it was utterly nerve-wracking. And, and by that time, I realised that I would like to. I then got myself in a bit of... I was very, very tense. And then what happens is, of course... It gets announced and it's like the most glamorous 15 minutes of my life is that you kind of get whisked away. You go into a press conference and then you go and have a photo shoot with the Times. They promised to whiten my teeth, but they didn't. But it was still a nice picture. And then you go and meet Nick Hearn. Then you go and do a video and then you go downstairs and everyone's gone home. <laughs> One of the most important things about the prize is that everyone enters under a pseudonym. And that seems equally important to judges, readers and to the entrants themselves. Because you enter under a pseudonym, they only judge your work on its merits. The anonymity of the entries is kept from everybody that reads the plays, from the first read to the second read to the shortlisting meeting and the people involved in that, and then the judges. We talk about whether there's a problem of gender balance, of playwrights coming through. In, in many ways, I think there is. Because if 17% of published playwrights are women, and yet 50% at least are getting shortlisted for Bruntwood, then there's something wrong there, and we need competitions like Bruntwood to help to highlight that. Even when we've been bringing through female playwrights over the last few years, there's, there's a belief that there are certain kind of plays a woman can write and certain kind of plays a man can write. Some plays that deal with very big themes, perhaps very meaty political themes. I don't think that we are commissioning enough female writers to do those plays. I really don't think we are. Being a critic or a blogger, you're constantly finding context. You're finding context for the narratives that you're watching and the, the visual imagery and the acting style. And you're placing everything that you watch into a continuum of the art form and also into the time it's being made and into your life that week and into everything. And yet, when the Bruntwood hits, of course you're sitting there and you don't know the gender because the pseudonym often works against the gender. Deliberately so at times. Zola Gorgon. You're reading and of course you're wondering, is this person a man or a woman? Who has written this? Who has thought these ideas? What are they? Are they male, female? Are they, are they old? Are they younger? How much money's in their bank account? Like, all of that stuff. I crave that information. What if they are... 18 years old and they've been writing it when they should have been revising for their A-levels. And that, that's the stuff that plays in your mind and you're like, who are these people? It was reading those plays that made me realise how much I bring that in, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, into my judgement of the work that I see and am watching elsewhere. When I have found out when the prize is over, the gender of somebody who has, has been shortlisted, you'd be really surprised. And that is actually a massive indication that this is a positive thing. Such a high percentage of the winners have been women. And that is a real indicator that I, that I do believe that we've been patronising our female writers <laughs> over time. What the Bruntwood does is it trips away a lot of that. And a lot of people said they thought I was a man. I'm not quite sure what to think about that. Is there an expectation that you're going to commission a male writer to write what you consider to be a State of the Nation piece? It's just rubbish. It's just rubbish. And, and I feel like that's what I'm seeing constantly, all the time. The great thing about it is you can't tell me that a certain kind of person 
writes a certain kind of play. I think this is a deep-rooted thing. I don't think it's something that theatre has created. I think it's something that theatre has just subconsciously carried through from society's disparity in the way it approaches men and women. So therefore I think that we have to actively work against that. I hope that we're working against that. I really, really do. But I'm I'm not I'm not convinced we are. I think there are great steps to do so. Massive steps. But you know, it is theatre's job to, to do better at this than anyone else. If we're progressive, if we consider ourselves progressive artists, then we need to be better. The other thing that people seem to really like about the prize is that it's based in Manchester. The Brumwood is its one of the biggest hitters, really, in terms of new work coming through. And isn't that interesting that that's not coming from London? The thing that's kind of good about the energy of the prize being kind of um, located outside of London is that actually it's a level playing field for anybody that's writing outside of London, wherever you live. One of the things that the Brumwood is doing is it's expanding the focus beyond this London-centric community, this London-centric view of where work comes from, particularly new work. Our business is, is based in the provinces and mainly in Manchester, and we see that it's terribly important that a city like Manchester establishes its credentials in the arts and has a very lively, vibrant art scene because that's, that's part of what makes the city work. It's just unfortunate that all of the media, or virtually all of the media, is based in London and at times it's extremely difficult to get them off their backsides to see the, the great stuff we're doing. So what kind of effect can the prize have? Virtually all of them in the past, playwriting has not been their main source of income. In other words, before the competition, they did other things and they wrote plays on the sides, weekends, nights, you know, that sort of thing. One of the big changes that I made after winning the prize, because obviously the money makes a huge difference, you know, I've never really ever had any money in my life and, and £16,000 is a, it is a life-changing amount of money, actually, it meant I could pay my debts. Whereas the competition has very much allowed people to become full-time playwrights. But one of the things I did was I rented... I rent a little studio to write in. I've got a little kind of cubicle and I'm in with lots of other artists and writers. Being able to leave the house and go to my place of work and to understand that it was a real job. You know, sometimes I might just sit and stare at the screen, you know, for, you know, the whole day. But it's part of that kind of structure and commitment and discipline has proved really, really important. So that, I mean, if someone was going to ask me advice about how to start writing or if you wanted to write, I think getting out of your home and getting somewhere that's quiet and that makes you feel inspired is a really good thing to do, I think. So the effect is absolutely huge. It really is. I was at the awards ceremony just hours ago and there were tears and smiles and the real powerful feeling that this prize is going to change the lives of not just the winner, Catherine Soper, and not even just those who won the judges' awards, but each of the ten writers on that shortlist. I saw extracts from each of the shortlisted plays. They were an affirmation of the brilliance and acuity and passion of all of these writers, and there are some really, really wonderful things in store for audiences who get to watch and read these plays in the future. And that's it. That's the end of the episode. That's the Bruntwood story. That's how a script 
buried in a bottom drawer can turn into £16,000 in a matter of weeks. So all that's left is to say thank you to Anna Jordan, Michael Oglesby, David Mercatali, Megan Vaughan, Suzanne Bell, Sarah Frankham and Andrew Hayden for talking to us. Pursued by a Bear is a podcast from Exeunt Magazine in association with the wonderful Nick Hearn Books. This episode was presented by Tim Bano and produced by Tim and Anna Gret Merton. There's some really brilliant stuff on Exeunt at the moment, so do go to exeuntmagazine.com and read it all, everything. Thanks for listening. Bye! Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.